Welcome to Knowledgeable Aging. I'm your host, Jason Kotar. Joining us today to talk about how I became a dementia campaigner is Pippa Kelly. Pippa is one of the UK's foremost writers on dementia, an award-winning blogger and journalist. She hosts the weekly dementia podcast, Well I Know Now, and speaks regularly on elderly care and dementia. Her haunting novel, Invisible Ink, which has a small but significant thread based on her late mother, was published in 2016. How are you doing today, Pippa? I'm very well indeed, thank you. Well, thank you for being here. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Before we get started, for those that are joining us for the live webinar, if you have any questions, type your questions in. Time permitting, we will do everything in our power to get your questions answered. So, Pip, I'd like to get started with how did you become a dementia campaigner? A dementia campaigner? Yeah, well, the short answer, Jason, is by mistake. Um, I think that's how a lot of people become campaigners. The rather longer answer, um, and it is a bit long, so bear with me because I think it's worth saying. It uh, started with my mum, who in her later years developed vascular dementia. And my mum was a very, from very humble beginning, uh, beginnings indeed. She was a miner's daughter from Derbyshire up in the north of England. She left school at 12 to look after her siblings. She was very largely uneducated. And when she was 13, she went, I don't know whether you sort of know this phrase in America or wherever, but uh, she went into service for the New, Duke of Newcastle under Lyme. Um, that's like, you know, being in Downton Abbey. She was definitely under the stairs, a maid. And um, when his house burnt down, she came down to Surrey in the south of England. And she met a young soldier not long back from Second World War. That was my dad. Theirs was a love match. It lasted over 60 years. They went on to have three children. And I was the youngest by far. Um, they never had very much money. Um, Dad was a middle-ranking civil servant. Um, but my mum was very proud and determined. When I was 13, we just my older siblings already left home. Mum, Dad and I, we moved to this house called Robin Wood. Now, this is where it really gets important to the dementia story. Robin Wood um, was a funny old ramshackly house. It was built on a hill um, and its garden sloped down to the River Mole in Surrey. And it was much to my mum's absolute disbelief, I think, and unbridled delight. It was a detached house, sat on its own. She adored it. I don't think my mum, coming from such humble beginnings, ever thought she'd live in a house like that. So you can't downplay the, the importance of this house in her life. But, you know, for all its unique charms, this house built on a one in three hill. It was no place for two elderly people. And as my parents got older, it became quite obvious to everybody that it was totally inappropriate. My mum actually was sort of okay, but we were getting a bit worried about her mental state. My dad, though, had heart disease and he was getting very frail. And age 78, he had a triple heart bypass and he collapsed a couple of times, went into hospital. The doctor said, you've got to get your parents out of that house. It's just completely unsuitable. My mum just kept saying, I'm not moving. I'm not moving. It became like a sort of mantra. So when dad had had his heart bypass, my siblings and I thought we've got to take matters into our own hands and do something. So we decided that I would have to do it because I have power of attorney. That's very important um, for both my parents. So I would have to sell this house, my mum's absolutely beloved Robin Wood, uh, without her permission um, and without her knowledge. I'd have to sell it from under her. So just imagine the guilt involved with that um anyway i had to keep thinking about my dad as well two people's welfare often the case 
So um, I did, it took a long time, difficult to sell a house when one of the residents doesn't know it's on the market and doesn't want to sell it. Um, once having sold it, uh, in fact, before it went through the sale of the house, I bought a flat, much more suitable for my parents nearby. And But the really big challenge was how to get my mum physically out of this house. And we came up, me and my two siblings, with this really heartbreaking plan, and it's gonna sound pretty cruel, but we had to do it. And what the plan was that my sister would invite our parents to go and stay with her in Somerset for the weekend, something we knew mum would be only too happy to do. Dad was in on this ruse. Um, but the sting in the tail was that when she brought my parents back, our parents back, she'd bring them back not to Robinwood, but to this new flat. So it was that one Thursday morning, a few years ago, in the spring, overcast there, I remember it so well, because of all the years of looking after both my parents, about 10 years and all, I think this was probably the worst day of it. I got a telephone call from my sister to say, okay, I picked up mum and dad, the coast is clear. And I drove down to London and I got to this house, Robin Wood. And remember I moved there when I was 13. So it had a lot of very fond memories for me. Um, and I got there, went through the front door. The house was still very warm. My mum's coffee cup was still on the kitchen table because she thought she was coming back. And I just, felt absolutely heavy with guilt. I really felt it. You say that in novels, but I really felt I could hardly move. I had to switch off my emotions uh, because what I had to do in a matter of hours was I had to pack up this house. My parents had lived in for 35 years in a matter of hours um, because the removal men were coming the next morning. So I had to shove, unlooked at, unopened, the contents of drawers, cupboards, wardrobes, into black bin bags and I realized later that my mum's dementia robbed me not only of my mum but of my chance to say goodbye to my childhood home to my childhood so I resented that later I came to resent that and um, anyway a few hours after I arrived my brother had flown over from Ireland where he lives with his family and he helped me and it, that was a little bit easier the next morning the removal lorries arrived everything went off to the flat the next couple of days Friday afternoon Saturday Paul, my brother and I, we rushed around and we set up this new flat using familiar objects. You know, the doctor had told us to make it nice and familiar for mum. And on the Sunday, my sister brought her parents back up. And as she approached, um, you know, the area where they live, she told, she and dad told mum what we'd done. Now, I've said that so quickly in such a sort of stark way that you won't be at all surprised to hear that my mum, well, she had a sort of hysterical breakdown um and refused to get out of the car when she got to the flat but put another way what happened was my mum's dementia which until then had only been really hinted at we were beginning to get worried but we hadn't really kind of spoken the word even um which is all so common with families when i speak to them now um it just unleashed itself because before it had obviously been staved off by being these very familiar surroundings of this house she lived in for 35 years so common with dementia my dad had been covering it up. So common that a spouse covers it up. But now, with this huge shock, very common, the dementia came out and we had to call in paramedics. Um, they were really quite powerless to do anything much and sedate my mum. She just had one night in this new flat. So on the next day, the Monday, as it happened, by complete coincidence, really, my mum had an appointment with a geriatric consultant. And because of all that had happened in the preceding 72 hours, I phoned up the consultant to warn him, and he in turn warned me. 
that um, it's quite clear my mum needed to go into hospital if only for observation. And if she refused to be admitted, he would have to use the Mental Health Act and section her. So mum and I went into the hospital on the Monday morning. First of all, she'd done that thing again that often people in the early stages of dementia do, and she'd sort of flipped back into the old mum. She seemed pretty cogent, rational. But as the consultant began to reason to her with her that she really did need to leave Robin Wood and her children were doing the best thing for her, um, she once again became very agitated, very distressed. And then the consultant said, I'm just stepping out to fetch a colleague. And I knew that was his signal to me that he was stepping out to fetch a colleague and they were going to come back. And my mum was about to be sectioned, punched my eyes. I think I was emotionally and physically exhausted anyway. No, I burst into tears. The whole thing got too much. And then this really remarkable thing happened because my mum looked me in the eyes. She saw me burst into tears and she said, well, I'll go in then. I can't upset my baby because she always called me her baby because I was by far the youngest of her three children. So she went into hospital. She remained there for six weeks. She went straight from hospital to the first of her two nursing homes where she lived out the rest of her eight years. And that's how it all began for me and my family and at the time I was doing freelance journalism that was the first very personal piece that I wrote a few months later I wrote that and actually it's the first and only piece I've written under a pseudonym because it was so raw parents were alive and I wrote it for a national paper over here um, and it got a tremendous response I think it was the connect it was the power of a personal story um, and I really you know, the emotion was very raw, but it was a professional journalist writing it. So um, I began to write more and more. And then in the next few years, really, my mum was in the nursing home. Actually, my dad was was very ill and wanted to remain in the flat and had two living carers. And I was more sort of subsumed by looking after my dad. And I had to fight for various pieces of funding for him. And I wrote about all this. I kind of charted my parents' final years. and I became a bit known as a writer for elderly care issues and the funding of elderly care and dementia. Then after my mum died in 2014, I set up my blog and I didn't even know it would be about dementia, but it soon became apparent that's what readers wanted to write about. I re it really connected with them when I wrote about dementia. So um, within a few months, um, it won a national award over here. And um, I found myself being invited onto panels to speak at conferences, onto the radio. Um, I'd become, without knowing it, a dementia campaigner. As, you know, I kind of got this support behind me and was trying to make, the difference I was trying to make was just to really reduce the stigma around dementia, to increase the knowledge around it, bust some of the myths that still hover around dementia. And um, then, uh, to come right up to date, I've been thinking about setting up a podcast for a while, and then we went into lockdown in the UK in March. So I thought, well, now's the time, if ever. So I launched my first podcast, um, and you need a theme. So many people had said to me, I mean, I knew it was going to be dementia, but you need more of a theme than, than that, just that. And so many people had said to me, I wish I'd known when dad got dementia, when mum got dementia. I wish I'd known then what I know now. And I felt that. I mean, a lot of what I do, my writing, is I think. In a way, it's guilt. It, it, I just feel I knew nothing when my mum got dementia because we don't talk about it until we have to. Absolutely. Um, and so I thought, you know, it's going to be around that theme. And I found this quote, rather lovely quote from Sylvia Plath, from your side of the pond. 
um, which was, you know, well, I know now how much a simple thing like a snowfall can mean to a person. And that's very resonant of dementia because a lot of people with dementia, and I talk to a lot of people with dementia, who still leading really quite rewarding lives, say to me, you know, now their life has changed, it's very different, but they do realize what a small thing like a sunrise or a snowfall or a bird singing or a rainbow can mean. They sit, you know, they have to live in the moment. So first series of the podcast was very successful. Uh, it's very nice, I feel, you know, I spend too much time talking and writing myself. I wanted other people to tell their own stories. Um, and I've really enjoyed it. So I'm now halfway through the second series and there will be a third series because it's just, you know, there's so much to talk about. So many people to talk to. Yeah, so it's funny. So when we first started communicating back in early July, you were about a month in. So I think you just did your your, your most recent podcast episode was your 14th. So <laughs> you, you've had, you know, quite the the guests. Uh, you had award-winning international star Glenda Jackson. The one that I heard, this, the one that came out this morning was with Kate Lee, the CEO of the Alzheimer's Society. So I'm curious, Pippo, what have you learned from your podcast guests? I've learned so much. It's difficult to know where to start. I made a few notes because I knew you were going to ask me that. Um, but really, I think the overriding message of all of them um, is there's no them and us when it comes to people with dementia. It's just we're all in this together. You know, you might happen to have dementia. I'm lucky enough not to at the moment. But it's like this thing um, over here. We have dementia friends. I don't know if you have it in the U.S. A big movement over here so that everybody becomes dementia friendly and you and actually being dementia friendly is just being friendly it's just taking a little bit more time having a little bit more patience had more uh, empathy that sort of thing and tolerance um, and you often find that what's best for people with dementia is best for us all for everyone you know it's just one of those things that's one of the things that's come across powerfully another thing is that Although dementia, there's no getting away from the fact that dementia is incurable and it's a pretty cruel disease, a very cruel disease um, that impacts not just on the individual who develops it, but on the whole family and network of friends. Absolutely. Um, but it, it can also, you can have a life after dementia, um, at least for a while. It might be a different life, but it's still, you know, it can be a rewarding life. Um, I don't know if you heard, uh, Jason, I mean, uh, um, I've had two people with dementia on my two series. One was a chap called Chris Roberts, wonderful man. And the other one more recently was Dr. Jennifer Butte, a doctor, you know, a medical doctor herself diagnosed with dementia. Yes. So she's seen this as an opportunity to look at the mega medical condition from the inside out to actually live it. Um, uh, and supported by a really deep Christian faith that she has. She's... Um, She's wonderful, and she. So one of the things her podcast taught me, in no uncertain terms, was it's quite funny. You need to enable the person with dementia. You don't need to disable them by doing things for them or to them. Or anyway, I managed to quite successfully try and disable Jennifer because she was so much better than me with the technology that uh, she wanted to do it. Normally, I don't see the people. It's obviously audio or podcast, but. Jennifer's dementia means that she likes to see me. She does a lot of her communication through seeing eye contact, 
you know, verbally actually you can't see, but I am quite a hand person. I get quite sort of, you know, move my hand. Um, she likes to see all that, otherwise she can't really use a telephone. Uh, so I said, fine. So I thought, okay, well, this is a bit of a challenge, but I'll try and sort this one out. And then about a day or two before we were due to record it, she suddenly announced just like gaily that she didn't have an iPhone. Now that's how I do it. She didn't have a mobile phone at all. That's how I do it with my guests. I have a, a recording um, deck here. So I thought, oh, great. Anyway, Jennifer just kept saying, no, don't worry. You know, you can email me. We can do this. We can have a conversation through email. I was like, what? You know, <laughs> she was absolutely teaching and enabling me. And I thought, yeah, you know, um, so often people with dementia are written off. I mean, just don't do that. Um, and or think about ways that Chris had another example of that, where his wife thought he could no longer make a cup of tea. Actually, he could make a cup of tea. All that he couldn't do was take the lid off the kettle because it was just a tricky lid. They are tricky, some kettle lids. And so they bought a kettle with a pop-up lid. As soon as he got that, he could make a cup of tea. Because, you know, um, those, so you go from the sort of deeper, profound messages and learning, like we're all really in this together. Just think about it. Don't do this whole discrimination stigma thing of I want to cross the road because dementia frightens me um, to actually just enable them by thinking, what can't Chris do? Oh, we need to buy a new kettle. You know, it goes from the practical and the trivial almost to quite deep things. Um, you know, I could go on and on about what people have taught me um, all day. Right. So I'd like to look back a little bit with you. Um, is there a thing or a series of things now that you know that you would have done differently with your mom? Oh, yeah. So one of my big passions now um, that I've learned through all my work and through talking to people is the power of music to connect with people with even very severe dementia. On YouTube, there are lots of amazing videos. One's called Alive Inside of people in that typical sort of advanced dementia state, head down, drooling maybe, completely seemingly lost to the world, like they've untethered themselves from, from the world. Um, particularly if you use as a lying pod, so that's right in the ear, which seems to go more into your head, it's more direct connection. Put a piece of music in there that's very meaningful to that individual. Maybe some music they had at their wedding, you know, something from their childhood, whatever it might be, and you see them almost literally come alive. You know, the foot starts tapping. The, you know, they might start rocking. The head comes up. The eyes suddenly alert. It's literally almost miraculous. And why I feel that really quite deeply is because um, quite by chance, um, my mum, as with a lot of people towards the end of their lives, I kept getting calls from the hospital to say, Think you ought to come you know your mum's got an infection she's in the nursing home um yeah so it wouldn't be from the hospital but from the nursing home and anyway this call came through to me it was christmas eve a few years ago and uh i was in the shop doing the big christmas shopping for you know christmas day and uh to be perfectly honest i nearly didn't go down to the nursing home so i've been there so many times before you know you rush down and then she was in such a state that she was always asleep. She wasn't moving. She wasn't eating. She was just asleep. And I thought, I bet this isn't the end. You know, I've been there so many more times. But then, of course, I did go down because it's your mum. And, you know, so I went down. And I thought, you know, actually, it's Christmas Eve. And my mum loved Christmas. And the thing she loved most of all was over here, we have the nine lessons from carols from King's College, Cambridge, 
um, the university. Um, it's absolutely Christmas, and it always starts with a lone chorister's voice singing Once in Royal David City. Mum and I always used to listen to that when we made our mince pies and stuff. So I arrived just in time, I put the radio on in her room, mum was just there, curled up, you know, sort of asleep, as she had been for months and months and months, possibly a year really. And as this lone chorister's voice came on, she opened her eyes and just looked at the ceiling. It's a very small thing, but at that state of dementia, it was definitely, it was very um, moving for me. It was a very powerful moment because I knew that something had connected in my mum and um, we listened together. That's all that happened, but it was very powerful. And we listened to the service together and then I left and I drove back up to London. And then on Christmas day, I kept in touch all the time. And then I got a call saying, think you need to come. And I went down again and I arrived just about five minutes too late. And um, Christmas day, so it was, it was kind of, you know, shift staff, it was, the holiday staff but the carer just met me in the corridor and said she's gone and I've missed her passing so that was really hard but I was very comforted with the knowledge that the day before we sat and listened to that so uh, the power of music is amazing and um, the power of lots of things are amazing poetry art but there are neurological reasons why music connects so profoundly it's to do with all the very different elements there are of music, the lyrics, the rhythm, the cadences, and the bits of the brain that they touch. Apparently, it's a bit like a tip of the tongue moment when I'd say, I've forgotten that chap's name, and people will be firing names, and suddenly they'll go, John, James, and I'll go, Jason, it's Jason. Um, it's a bit like that, and so music fires off all these neurons, and one will fire up, and also it's the last bits of the brain to go in somebody with dementia so I think that that was a big 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 learning and I wish because I would have listened to music much more with my mum and now people put together playlists yeah there's charity over here playlist for life so you put together your playlist so that were you to get to that state and even if you can't communicate even if it's not dementia for people to know these things that you want to listen to other things you might want you to know you know I need always endless supplies of Earl Grey tea that's what I'm going to need wherever I am um, and I've got my list of songs, you know, um, I just wish I'd known about the power of music. Yeah. So I'd like to focus on the caregiver, uh, family caregiver and your situation. You, the words that I've, you've mentioned a couple of different times, guilt and regret. Yeah. How have you been able to, to deal with those in the time that's passed from your mom when she passed away in, I believe, 2014 to today? Well, I think in a way it's why I do what I do. Um, and I do remember so many people saying to me at the time, actually even at the time when um, my mum was still alive, but I was writing and I'd have to phone up, um, you know, charities like Care and Council and you'd finish the conversation to get the pieces of information or the quotes you wanted and then you'd have your own conversation, you know, like private conversation. And I would say to my sometimes say I feel guilty because I'm learning now, but it was almost too late for my mum, even when she was alive, it was kind of too late for bits of things I knew. And one of the lovely, um, it was a care and counsel woman, I think, she said to me, look, you don't know what you don't know. And, you know, that's so true. 
you don't. So there's no use beating yourself up. And I tell that to a lot of people. I don't really know how you go about um, squaring it off in yourself other than just keep thinking that you did your best at the time of what knowledge you had. And I suppose now me and people like me, I know that what we're trying to do is just to increase the knowledge around dementia in all the ways we can, you know, by telling people about music, by telling people um, about the ways you can communicate with people, even when communication seems lost. Um, about not, you know, about the fact that everybody does feel guilty, Jason. You know, you're right. And I think every caregiver feels guilty. Since you've been a campaigner and a blogger, are there common questions that you get that that you can kind of just tell people to say, hey, look, you know, understand this? Yes, the most common question I get is a really, really basic one. It's what's the difference between Alzheimer's and dementia? I think that's the question I'm asked most. And then I'm afraid I have to say that's really the wrong question to ask because dementia is an umbrella term for well over 100 different types of dementia, um, the most common of which by far is Alzheimer's. Um, I think actually as well, if I'm not mistaken, in, in, in States, you your umbrella term is really Alzheimer's, isn't it? You tend to use Alzheimer's as a sort of generic term for it. Um, so now our second most common form of dementia is vascular dementia, which is what my mum had. Um, so there's a lot of confusion around that. In a way, I think that the fact that there's confusion around such a basic element of dementia um, really highlights how much confusion there still is generally around the condition, you know. Um, that's probably what I'm asked most. Um, I'm then asked about, um, you know, the fact that have you got siblings and how much did you work together? Because the way I tell the story, I'm sort of horribly conscious that it comes across as me. Now, um, my siblings were incredibly supportive, but my brother was in Ireland, which is obviously a separate island from us. And um, my sister was further away as well. And I had power of attorney. I think that's really the thing. Once you have the legal power of attorney, you've got to do all the signing off. And so much as people can try and help you, um, you've got to do that. Really, one person will end up sort of doing it. You, I see this happen again and again. It's good to be very clear, I think, about who you want to be that person within your family, because it does tend to fall to one person with the support of lots of other people. Um, and I was the closest geographically, um, all these things. But, yeah, so the sort of family dynamics of it uh, are very interesting. In my family, we're all very supportive, but, of course, that can cause issues within itself because right. people can have different opinions about whether, you know, mum or granny should go into a care home or not. Um, other questions are, you know, around the dementia condition itself. You know, can drinking coffee cause it? Can drinking coffee save it off? Can, um, to be honest, if it's to do with vascular dementia, um, anything to do with the heart is probably not going to hurt because it's, you know, vascular. It's to do with the heart and the. But uh, otherwise, I'm quite sceptical about that. I think a lot of it's genetic. Um, you can certainly keep your brain stimulated. Um, and I do think that, you know, in this lockdown period when we haven't been able to have social stimulation, it, it really probably hasn't helped a lot of people just generally, you know, young people, anybody. But I'm sure it won't have helped older people who can get very lonely anyway. And people with dementia who really need this use it or lose it um, 
a very, very talented, um, lovely woman with dementia over here called Wendy Mitchell, who in fact wrote a best-selling memoir um, called Somebody I Used to Know. She says in the book about how she's become, at one stage, she became so busy going onto television because she was so successful with her book and things that she does a, she does a blog every day, every day. I mean, that's a lot, as I know. Um, and then because she was so busy, she forgot, she, she didn't forget, she just didn't have time to do it for two weeks. She is finding it harder to communicate verbally, but she has this brilliant way of talking through her fingers. She can type very, very well, very fluently, very articulately and fluently. But um, when she went back after two weeks, she does have Alzheimer's and she'd completely forgotten what to do. She sat there and she said she felt this sort of terror rising up in her and then after a while she saw the envelope icon and she vaguely knew that was something but that wasn't you know the email icon but so she clicked that she just clicked her name she clicked some stuff and then this friend that happened to be who she sent this email to said replied to her and said wendy that's gobbledygook so wendy's and oh she did it again and then my friend said that's still gobbledygook copy what i write i'm not sure i would have had the foresight to think about that if i were yeah. wendy's friend but so then the friend typed, you know, I am Wendy Mitchell and blah, 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 whatever it was. Wendy copied. And it slowly, slowly, it came back. You know, her fingertips started to move because this is the way she sort of communicates now. And um, but Wendy said it was terrifying, absolutely terrifying. And she doesn't want to stop doing it again. And I know that lockdown's been very difficult for her. Yeah. Last question, Pippa. Do you have one piece of advice if you've got a family member watching this or listening to us that has concerns about maybe a loved one that is starting to have some cognitive you know impairments what what did what should they do um well first of all if it is just cognitive impairments like i've gone upstairs and i can't remember what i've come upstairs for um don't worry too much because we all get that Right. Um, it's more like these strange, strange things that happen when you become completely disorientated. I don't know if anybody has watched the film Still Alice, but when Alice goes for her run that she's done so many times before and suddenly stands there and doesn't know where she is, people often speak about going to do the shopping, doing a route they've done, you know, once a week for 30 years and then think, I can't remember how to get home, that sort of thing. That's what you'd be worried about if that did start to happen or other things that were a bit you know, more worrying than going upstairs, forgetting. Um, go to the doctor. You know, it's different in different countries, isn't it? But go to the doctor, we are first board, of course. And then I'm afraid you often have to keep pushing and pushing. Dementia is so often misdiagnosed as depression, because often people will say, oh, well, they're just, um, you know, they think they're not, they're not old enough because they're only in their early 60s. Well, you know, you can, absolutely. It's, it's primarily, um, a disease and a condition of old age, but it's not only. 40,000 people in the UK are diagnosed with dementia under the age of 65. It's about 870,000 altogether are diagnosed. So it's a small percentage, but it's a big enough number of people. Mm -hmm. um, so keep pushing away from that diagnosis. You do tend to find that the person themselves and you know the spouse or somebody close to them, they have a gut instinct. They will know what's not right. So the other thing is, if you have been, you know, in, in quite a sort of, this is a bit of a generalization, but because the other thing is that everybody's dementia is different. One of the sayings is if, if you've met one person with dementia, you've met one person with dementia because it displays differently. 
each time. But you know, if you're starting life quite a high um, you know, knowledge base and you're pretty articulate and you're quite sort of your IQ is quite high, you might find people find ways to cope around it. So you might go to the doctor and say, Oh, this person's absolutely fine, you know, and they're given the standard test. And I've heard so many people with spouses who said, Well, I couldn't remember the 10 items I was asked or the three items I was asked, but you know, my husband didn't, he was the one that turned out to have dementia. So if you feel this, like keep pushing and pushing to go to the memory clinic, to go to that further step from the general practitioner. Um, because you, it is good to get a diagnosis, I think, because once you get the diagnosis, you know what you're dealing with. Um, and, you, and there are lots of resources out there, um, you know, if you know where to look. And, and it's also good because you can talk to other people who've been in the same situation and realise that there is a life after a diagnosis. Yeah. Well, excellent stuff, Pippa. So how can people find you? Uh, they can find me uh, at my blog, um, which is just literally my name, pippakelly.co.uk. Um, and always now on my blog every week, while my podcasts run, I have a series of eight each time, the first thing you see will be the latest podcast with all the different links, whether it be Apple, Spotify, Google, Acast. And the podcast itself, so it's available on every podcast platform, is called Well I Know Now. To just Google Pip Kelly, well, I know now it will come up and you'll find it. Very good. Yeah, and Pippa also is all over social media. I know, uh, you know, you, we were talking the first one that you launched uh, this morning for uh, with with Kate yeah. Lee. I saw it on uh, on LinkedIn first thing this morning, and so just went into Spotify and that's how I found it. So yeah, so excellent. So uh, thank you, Pippa. Uh, really good stuff today. So as far as knowledgeable aging, you can find us um, on our YouTube page. Type in knowledgeable aging. We update the YouTube page five to six times a week, typically. Um, go ahead and subscribe if you don't mind. Also, our podcast is found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc. Till next time, I'm your host, Jason Kotar, and this is Knowledgeable Aging.